I'd invite you to go ahead and remain standing, please. We're going to jump right into the text. It's a long one, so if you need to sit, I certainly understand that. But we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 53. So go ahead and open your Bibles to that, uh, that section, please. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever he was. And whenever, wherever he came, in the villages, the cities, or the countryside, they laid their sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say... If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. All God's people said? You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my precious Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in the precious name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, that we offer this prayer. Amen. So if you were worshiping with us last week, you'll remember that Jesus, after feeding the massive crowd, thousands of people, miraculously, with just a few fish and five barley loaves, he then sent his disciples back across the sea. Along the way, during this trip, a great storm blew up. It was a mighty wind, and so the men, they struggled at the oars. They had been rowing for something like 12 hours, so that then, between the hours of 3 and 6 in the morning, Jesus came to them walking on the water. I still stand in awe of that. Jesus walks to them out on the water. He saw where they were. He was in communion. He was in prayer with the Father. He saw where they were. He knew what they needed, and he walked out to them on the water. But they were terrified, thinking that they had seen a ghost, and so they cried out. But Jesus responded to them. He said, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And as soon as Jesus got into the boat, the wind subsided. John tells us that then immediately they arrived at their destination. And we learned this morning that apparently their ultimate destination as they sailed past Bethsaida was to a place called Gennesaret. Now, Gennesaret is just south and west of Capernaum, the place that had been Jesus' home base for much of his ministry there in Galilee. And so as the men, as they arrived there, you might imagine that they were looking forward to a time of rest. You may remember that Jesus had originally sent them across the Sea of Galilee because they needed to rest. He had sent them out on a missionary journey. They were wiped out. They were exhausted. And he said, you need to rest. I'm going to send you across the lake. And they never got any rest. 
They were met with nothing but masses of humanity. And the same thing was going to happen here. As he gets out, he was too well known. People had heard of Jesus. They knew what he could do. They knew the power that he possessed. And so they brought people to him, laying them along the side of the roads. If even they could just reach out their hands and touch just the tassels that hung from his garments. You see, Moses had commanded in his, God had commanded through Moses in the word that the people on the four corners of their, of their garments, they were to have tassels with blue cords that were hanging out. Zitzitz is the name in Hebrew. And so Jesus is a good Hebrew. He would have had these tassels. So it would have made it even easier for these people. This isn't the purpose behind it, but it would have practically made it easier as he walked along the road for people to just reach out and touch even just a tassel. And he healed them. So these three verses that end chapter 6, we might think of them as almost like a summary of everything that Jesus has been doing for the last year during his Galilean ministry. Just showing the compassion that he had for the lost sheep of Israel. People that were so desperate for someone to come along and care for them. So we see him caring for the people physically. Then chapter 7 began like this. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. So we know that it's about 90 miles from Jerusalem up to this region of Galilee. And without a truck to jump in and go, this was not an easy journey. You had to really be motivated to get there. And as we've learned throughout much of Mark's gospel, these scribes and these Pharisees, they were motivated. What motivated them was their deep desire to see the destruction of Jesus Christ. They knew his claims. They knew that he claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of the Most High God. They had seen his works. They had heard his offer of salvation. They had heard his gospel, but their hearts were too hardened. They simply would not, they could not receive it. Because you see, to trust in Jesus Christ would be to admit that they couldn't get back to God on their own abilities. To trust in Jesus Christ, to call out in his name, would be to reckon with their own brokenness, be to come to terms with the fact that they were wretches, and then to trust in the perfection of another on their behalf. They had too much to lose in this. Their own pride, their own position, their own power, their reputation. They simply could not let go of all that they had acquired, and so Jesus must be destroyed so that their way of life could be preserved. They were going to do everything they could to find him destroyed. And neighbor, I would submit to you this morning that this is exactly where many that reject the gospel today come from. They hear the promise of Jesus Christ. They hear the gospel call, and they understand that to look to and cry out to Jesus Christ as the only Savior sent from heaven is to acknowledge that there's something broken within me. I don't just need to change some things around the edges. I don't just need to try hard. I need to die. And I need to turn to someone else that is greater than me, the only Son of God. I need to turn from myself, and I need to turn to him. And in turning to him, you see, that's the funny thing. When you come to somebody with nothing, acknowledging that they have everything that demands submission i'm gonna have to do what he tells me to do and a natural man can't accept a call like that i like my own ways too much i like my own reputation too much and so instead what we do is we deem jesus to be a liar we crucify him yet again in our heart we twist his gospel we deny him we reject him completely because the god of self is way too big that's where these men had found themselves. And for them, the only way that they could destroy Jesus Christ was to catch him breaking God's law. And so they dedicated themselves to following, to watching, to waiting, just trying to catch him slipping up. They could just catch him at any one moment breaking God's commandments. Then they would know that they had him. And we read throughout Mark's gospel, there's a number of these encounters. Like in the second chapter of Mark's gospel, you remember that they come to him and they ask him. They say, you know, John's disciples, they fast. 
And the disciples of the Pharisees, they fast. But your disciples, they don't fast, Jesus. Why is this? And then a little bit later, you remember that on the Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples, they were passing through some grain fields, and the men were hungry. What do men do when we're hungry? We eat. So they reached out their hand, and they grabbed some heads of grain, rubbed it between their hands, and just popped it into their mouth, almost just like a little snack. To me, this is one of the most sweet pictures in Mark's gospel. There's something sweet. There's something kind. There's something real about Jesus and his disciples, just some dudes out on a walk, going along and just popping food in their mouth along the way. But to these men, it was detestable. And so they came to him, and they accused him. They accused him of breaking the Sabbath. Look, Jesus, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, what we notice back there in the second chapter of Mark is that Jesus didn't even bother to address their claims. Instead, he used this as an opportunity to teach about fasting and to teach about the Sabbath, to show that he was Lord of the Sabbath, that Sabbath was intended to be a gift for man. He didn't even bother, us, bother addressing their claims. Instead, he taught those that had ears to hear. I would encourage you to go back and listen to those messages from that time if you want to dive deeper into that. But these religious snobs, they were back for more. They determined they were going to give it another go. And I don't know, were these the only three times that they had done this? I can't imagine. I had to imagine there was a whole lot of encounters just like this. As these dudes hid in the bushes and just waited for Jesus to slip up. So this time they say, or this time Mark tells us, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now it would be reasonable for people to be concerned about washing your hands before you eat. Look, we just come out of six months of people constantly banging on us about washing our hands. Wash your hands. We know this. And while we've learned a lot in the last 2,000 years about germs, and look, Peter, James, and John, they probably didn't know about E. coli or botulism or some of the diseases. They were smart, men. They knew you wash your hands before you eat. This wasn't a matter of cleanliness. This wasn't a matter of hygiene. This was a matter of ceremony. This was a matter of religion. This was a matter of ritual that they were concerned with here. And so to make clear to us what's going on, because you remember that Mark's gospel was primarily received by Gentile believers. And so he knew that we weren't going to be able to step in and immediately understand the fight. You ever walk up to a street corner and there's a fight going on and you can't even follow what the people are fighting about? That's what they're doing here. And so Mark says, let me give you, let me give you some commentary on what you're seeing here. And that's the words that are in brackets probably in your Bible, the words that are in parentheses there. That's Mark's commentary on what's happening. Let me explain to you why it was such an offense to the Pharisees that Jesus' disciples weren't washing their hands ceremonially before they came and ate. You see, since the beginning, since God called his people out of slavery in Egypt, one of the major ways that he showed them what it meant to be separated. See, God had called his people to be separate from the nations, set apart to him, holy. And so as a physical, as an outward manifestation of that which was meant to be going on internally, he gave them these rules. From the circumcision to the Sabbath to laws about what was clean and what was unclean. He gave them tools that were meant to change their heart. It was meant to illustrate to the world what was going on within them spiritually. But instead of them, it just became about an issue. It became an issue of making clear who they were and who we are. And so we see how this plays out here. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, they do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. It says here that they would not eat unless they washed their hands properly. The word in Greek is pugme. It means fist. Literally, it means fist. And so we don't really know what this means. Does this mean that they wash their hands like one fist inside another, something like this? Does it mean that they had to wash their hands all the way up for the whole, the whole portion of their fist, all the way up to their wrist? Maybe does it mean that they washed with a fist full of water? I don't know. I listened to all the pastors I could find. I read all the commentary I could find. Nobody seems to know. But to them, this is what it meant to wash properly. They would wash all the way up to the fist, the entire fist, a fist full of water. They were going to wash properly before they ate. 
And then when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. See, it's one thing to come in for dinner after working out in the field. It's one thing to need to wash your hands because you've been out there doing ordinary things with those hands before you come and eat. It's an entirely different thing to come in from the marketplace because you know they're out there. You're going to bump into the unclean people out there, the Gentiles, maybe a leper, maybe a woman with a bleeding problem. And so washing your hands alone wasn't going to do before you ate. They had to wash their entire bodies. And so as you go about in Israel today, you'll find in some of the remnants of houses, you'll find pools They're really cool. They're like these stone pools that you can just wade right down into, that you could walk down into in order to cleanse your entire body like this. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. It didn't stop. It didn't stop with just washing hands. It didn't stop with just washing your body. There were hundreds upon hundreds of rules about ceremonial washing. Because everywhere you looked, everywhere you turned, there was something or someone that you might bump into that was deemed unclean. Again, this wasn't a matter of physical cleanliness. This was a matter of ceremony. This was a matter of religion. This was a matter of ritual. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So now they present the charge. Now you hear what their charge is to Jesus. Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders? You see, this wasn't an accusation that they had broken the law of God. This was not an accusation that they had sinned against God and broken the law that was given through Moses. This was because they had broken with the traditions of the elders. Mark used that same phrase back in his commentary. Remember, he said, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. Again, this was a matter of ceremony and religion. This had nothing to do with true holiness. This had nothing to do with the law that God had graciously given his people. This was all about their ceremonies. See, God had given law with regards to cleanliness. He did care about his ceremonial law. He did intend for his people to outwardly manifest this inward separation, this inward holiness. He gave them laws about if you touch a leper, if you have an open sore, if you touch a dead body. He had given them real ceremonial laws, but this wasn't one of them. He hadn't said anything about the ordinary people washing their hands ceremonially before they came to eat. The only thing he had spoken about was in Exodus 30. You'll find in Exodus 30 that what he said is that there's to be a bronze basin placed between the altar and the tent of meeting and that the priests, the sons of Aaron, before they go in and offer a burnt offering, they're to wash their hands and their feet in this bronze basin before they go in there. But Jesus and his disciples, these were not priests and they were not going in to make offerings to the temple. But the reality is these people had taken God's law and they had expanded it into places that he had never taken it. They believed that God needed some help. So they expanded and they applied his law in ways that God had never intended, intended for it to be applied. Now we talked about this whenever we dealt with the encounter there in the grain field. Now God's people, they, they decided they needed more application. They needed, they needed more specificity with regards to how God's law applied to their life. And so many of them, they held to the belief that in addition to the law that was recorded, the written law that was given through Moses, then in addition to that, God had spoken some additional laws to Moses that were not written down. These oral laws, these traditions, that they were just passed down verbally through the generations. And we know then that sometime in the second century A.D. that these, common, these laws, these oral laws, these oral traditions, along with the commentaries, they were compiled into a work that's called the Mishnah. Something like 25% of the Mishnah is dedicated to laws about cleanliness. Man-made ceremonial laws about cleanliness. Well, a few centuries after that, they decided, you know what, the Mishnah doesn't go far enough. So we need commentary, we need expansion, we need explanation on the Mishnah. So they came up with another one called the Gemara. So the Mishnah and the Gemara, they combined to form what's called the Talmud. You've heard of that before, right? 
the Talmud. There are these man-made laws, these man-made commentaries. And even though they weren't compiled until 500 years after Jesus had returned to heaven, we know that the traditions, the oral telling of these, they go back hundreds of years before his birth. And so these were the laws, these oral traditions, these oral ceremonies that had been passed along, these were the laws that they were accusing Jesus and his disciples of breaking. Now, I'm sure that it began with good intentions. I'm sure that these men had righteous and good intentions originally when they set out to do this because they wanted to see how they could apply God's law to their common life, their current life, their modern life. You see that today. People will come in and they'll say, look, I don't understand how words written 2,000 years ago could possibly apply to my life today. Jesus doesn't say anything about the Internet. He doesn't say anything about corona. He doesn't say anything about mental illness. God's law doesn't speak to this at all. And so surely there were people that were coming to the scribes and the Pharisees, and they had similar complaints. Surely there were men that had come to them, and they said, you know what, it's great that Moses wrote that law a thousand years ago. By the way, we do well to remember that for the people walking in Jesus' time, Moses was a long, long way back. We can somehow get it twisted in our heads sometimes that it's like Jesus and Moses and Adam all just walking around the earth at the same time. You're talking about thousands of years of separation. You think about how hard, hard a time you have sometimes reading some of the literature from like the founding of our country. Now go back thousands of years into a different language and try to understand those laws. They would have had a similarly difficult time at points applying the law of God spoken through Moses to their modern life. And so they would have been calling out, show us how to apply this then. Show us how this applies. And so they would have given into that. They would have said, very well then, we're going to give you. We're going to try to explore every possible option to show you how God's law is meant to apply to your life. In addition to that, they were so zealous for God's law. Again, this probably started with righteous intentions. They wanted to keep people from sinning against God's law, and so they felt like they needed to extend a barrier around it. The Mishnah refers to this oral tradition as a fence around God's law, like a baby gate. There's something there, and you know that these people can't be trusted to go anywhere near there without stumbling in. And so we're going to set a fence, a barrier, a gate around the outside of this to make sure that there's no way they'll go anywhere near, and then we can just breathe. Then we don't have to worry about offending God because we set a boundary way back here. We don't ever have to worry about stumbling into sin. This was their intention when they set out to write this. And, and we saw the way that this played out with regards to the Sabbath. God had, been, God had given very straightforward laws with regards to the Sabbath. It was a day that was meant to be set apart where you don't do your ordinary work. You rest from your ordinary labor. It was a day of rest. It was a day of worship. It was a day to do acts of mercy. And yet by the time Jesus comes along, they decide determined, you know what? We can't just let people decide for themselves what work looks like. And look. Wouldn't it be bad if somebody thought about work on the Sabbath? We've got to protect them against even that. So by the time they're said and done, you go to Israel today, and you're not allowed to push an elevator button or tear off a piece of toilet paper on the Sabbath. That's where this leads, to incredible burdens, just back-breaking burdens upon the people that they were just groaning under. And the worst part is, these laws didn't even come from God. These were the rules of man imposed upon other men. This is legalism at its worst. Listen, there's a form of legalism that's truly detestable. The legalism which looks to the free offer of salvation in Christ Jesus and spits in his face. Says, you know what? I don't trust that you're enough. Or I'd rather earn my own way. And so I'm going to work really hard to be holy. I'm going to work really hard to keep the laws. I'm going to work really hard to keep the rules. I'm going to try to do everything I can to overcome whatever sin I've done and to balance the scales in my favor. That is one kind of legalism, and that is grotesque. But then there's another, where men come to the law of God. Men come to the law of God, and they've got a desire, a love for the law of God, but based on their own personal convictions, 
They then impose them on someone else. They take their own personal convictions about God's law, and then they force them on you. That is an abomination. The worst kind of legalism in my estimation. And that's exactly what was playing out in this day. Jesus had not sinned, ever. He had not transgressed the law of God. He loved God's law. It was a delight. He came to fulfill it. Every single last letter of the law, he came to fulfill it. But he despised the laws of men. He despised the ceremonial laws that men had manufactured on their own, ignoring the ceremonial laws of God, manufacturing on their own, and then forcing upon the people. He despised it, and so he forced a confrontation. I have to imagine that he was forcing the issue here. I thought back this week as we were reading through this text, I thought back this week to Daniel. You remember that Daniel learned that King Darius had passed a decree that anyone that prayed to anyone other than him was going to be fed to the lions. And so what did he do? He went into his house, he opened the windows, and he prayed three times a day, knowing that there were going to be there, people there waiting to watch him, to catch him, to accuse him. And yet still he forced the issue. Now, I have to believe that's what Jesus was doing. Because look, he could have just washed his hands. What did he have to lose? What do you have to lose from washing your hands a couple extra times a day other than maybe some cracked skin? God hadn't forbid people from washing their hands, so why couldn't he have just played nice? Why couldn't he have just maintained the peace? Why couldn't he have just signaled to his people, that, look, these Pharisees, these scribes, they're not that bad of guys. Look, they do pray to Yahweh. They do sing praises to the same God we do. Who cares if their theology is a little mixed up? Who cares if they don't understand it all? As long as you call on the name of the right God, then that's enough for me. And many of you this morning, you may be wondering that at times. What's the issue here? Why was Jesus so outraged? Why was he so determined to pick a fight on this? What's so wrong with adding laws? Doesn't that just make us more holy? Love, the issue is that they had taken the words of man and treated them like the words of God. They had taken the decrees of man and they had treated them as equal to the law of God. And this is sin. It is very root what it comes down to is an issue of the authority and the sufficiency of God's word. The question of, is God's word the only true authority in all matters of the faith? Has God given me in his word everything I need to know to love and please him in this lifetime? Or does he need a little help? Has he taken me only so far and then stepped back and said, okay, as far as I'm going, you figure the rest out. Go seek the wisdom of men and perhaps you're going to get there. Dear children, I believe that this issue right here, that this question that we face right here, it has destroyed more Christian lives than I know how to count. I, I don't think that many understand the weight of the question, is God's word enough? I don't think that people fully comprehend what that means. This isn't a new battle. It's been a battle since the very beginning of time. It was clearly a battle during Jesus' time. It was a battle for the saints that came before us. There were some, there were some Puritan ministers that gathered together, and they, they sought out to write a confession of faith to answer questions like this. They said these words, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, for man's salvation, for faith and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequences may be deduced from Scripture, under which nothing at any time is to be added, whether it is by new revelations of the Spirit or the traditions of men. 
What they're saying is everything you need to know in this life to know and please God, to walk in righteousness, everything you need to know is either expressly laid out or can be deduced from this word. Listen, is this word going to tell you what you need to do with regards to your 401k? Not explicitly, but wisdom is found here. Obedience is found here. The ways of the Lord are found here, and we can apply those based on the wisdom that we find here. But isn't it odd that I just talked to you about the sufficiency of Scripture and then I read from the books of men? Let me take you to Scripture and show you what it says. Psalm 19, 7 through 11 says this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of a honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. God's word is perfect. It is pure. It is sure. It is true. It is enough. God has given you in his word what you need to know him, to please him, to walk in obedience to him, and nothing ever may be added to it. Nothing ever may be elevated or even encroach upon the, the territory which only God's word is meant to apply in this lifetime. He does not need your help in revealing himself. He does not need your help in showing you the path of righteousness. He does not need your help in expressing his law in this lifetime. Now listen, he has given us good gifts. He's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it is this word that the Holy Spirit ministers to our heart. It is these words which the Holy Spirit guides us in, opens our eyes to rightly see, our hearts to understand, shows us what obedience looks like in those situations. I have people that come to me and say, Josh, you don't preach enough about application. You just take God's word and you just show it to us. That's not enough. Dear friends, it's not my job to show you how to apply it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He takes this word into the life of a believer and he leads you in the path of righteousness. He shows you, he strengthens you into encouraging this. Now, do I have a responsibility? Absolutely. He's given you shepherds, he's given you pastors, he's given you teachers to take this word and to teach it faithfully, to preach it boldly. But it all comes back to this word. The power of his word. That's exactly what he's done. And again, he doesn't need our help. He doesn't need additions. He doesn't need revisions. You notice it on your Bible? This is the Holy Bible. This is an English translation of the words given by God through the prophets, through the apostles. It doesn't say second edition, third edition, fourth edition, because I don't have to add to it. And to add to it is sin. That's exactly where these men were. Dear friends, I'm certain that there's been times when some of you have sat there and you've wondered, why does this dude speak so harshly against the wisdom of the world? Why does he plead so passionately with us that God's word is enough? Beloved, I think it's because when I look around in the 21st century, what I find is that the laws, the rules of the scribes and the Pharisees, they've just been replaced by the wisdom of men. I don't see a bunch of Southern Baptists running around trying to impose their own man-made rules anymore. I mean, look, there's the whole drinking and dancing thing. But instead, what I see is people saying, look, God's word is great and all, but I got real problems. And I don't believe God's word speaks to these real problems that my family and I face. So I'm going to go to the world. I'm going to go to my own wisdom. What you do is you completely throw out this word. And I know that it seems less ugly. I know that you take the, you take the Pharisees and the scribes over here and you see them 
demanding these laws be obeyed and just really oppressing the people, how does that possibly compare to people just going and grasping after the wisdom of the world when they think God's words fall short? I want to take you back to the Garden of Eden and remind you what the first sin was. Adam and Eve, they reached out their hand and they took of that fruit. Why? Because they were tempted. Why? Because they were told that God had withheld something from him. What? Knowledge. Satan convinced Adam and Eve that God had withheld knowledge. Knowledge that they needed in order to live in this lifetime. And so they reached out their hand and they sinned because they believed that God was holding the good stuff back. It's the same thing. You come to God's word and you say, well, you haven't given me all that I need, God, so I'm going to go out there and get it. If you're not going to give me what I need, then I'm going to go out there to the world or I'm going to manufacture in my own heart the ways of this life, the ways of righteousness. And it begins with very same intentions as these guys. It begins with good intentions, a desire to walk in righteousness, a desire to restore your family, a desire to heal someone that's got some mental illness. So we continue to go out there to the ways of the world thinking that's going to be the answers, and it's not. And I want to stretch this text beyond where God takes it. But you see the dark places where this leads in these men. We see the depravity that springs out in these men. We see the pride and the self-righteousness and the legalism and just the ugliness that comes pouring out of these people. And so I just plead with you. We must be on guard. We must make certain that nothing ever encroaches upon the place that only God's word is meant to hold. We must make certain that we guard this word as the only, only true authority in our life with the matters of faith. That we trust that it's enough. That we continue to come back to it time and time again, understanding that to try and add anything to God's word does not lead us closer to him. It only leads us further away. It does not lead us into righteousness. It leads us deeper into our own depravity. I think we see that in the life of the, life of the apostle Paul. Paul talks about this in Galatians 1, 13 through 14. He's talking to the people about, look, you know that this gospel that I'm preaching to you, it has come directly from God. This isn't the manufactured works of men. This is the word of God that I share with you. And then he goes on to say this in Galatians 1, 13 through 14. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing, advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. It wasn't that Paul or Saul didn't know the law of God. Philippians 3, he talks about his pedigree. From the right country, the right tribe, the right family, the right teachers, the right instructions. I knew the law. It's perfect in upholding the law. But he completely missed God in the process. He completely missed all that God was revealing in the process because he was so zealous for the traditions of men. So zealous was he for the traditions of men that he persecuted Christ and sought to destroy his bride, the church. That's where this leads. When we hold our own traditions, our own ideas, our own thoughts on par with God's word, when we allow them to croach into spaces that only God's word is meant to occupy, and I know you don't believe me, no, there's many of you sitting there today thinking I'm making much ado about nothing. Dear friends, I've seen it. Faith that has been absolutely shipwrecked because people did not believe that this word was enough. And we see it here in this man. Ultimately, of course, the issue was a hardened heart. But it manufactured itself with a love, a zeal for the traditions of men. Because the true law of God, it was meant to reveal to Saul and Paul and the Pharisees and the scribes and us today, it was meant to reveal the desperate need for a Savior. It was meant to expose our sin, to show us how far short we fall of God's glory. So that when Christ Jesus showed up, what should have happened was men and women should have been falling down on the floor saying, finally, someone that has come to uphold this law that we love, 
Some of them has come to do the thing that we can't do. But you see, when you get to make your own rules, I always win. I was that little kid. I'd go out in the neighborhood, and we were playing kickball. I was the third batter up. There was two outs. I kicked one out. I said, oh, no, I get a mulligan. Oh, no, we get four outs this inning. When you get to make up the rules, you always win. You have no need to turn to another. So they completely missed Jesus Christ. So blinded by their zeal for the traditions, the zeal for the wisdom, the ways, the ceremonies of men. They looked right past him. They hated him. They declared him a sinner. The only one that ever perfectly upheld the law that they said they were protecting. They declared him a blasphemer and a glutton and a drunkard. They said he was filled with Beelzebub. And ultimately they sought for him to be crucified. Because he didn't play by their rules. Well, guess what? Their rules weren't the real rules. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy to you, you hypocrites? As it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He calls them play actors, hypocrites, men behind masks. You're playing a role, but you are not there. You are not in it. And it may seem weird for him to bring up matters of worship here because we're just talking about hand cleaning. What does that have to do with worship? But dear friend, you don't understand. When we don't hold to God's word as the only authority, as the sufficient word in our life, not only does our concept of sin get twisted, but our worship gets completely knocked out of joint. Our worship gets all messed up when we don't hold to his word as enough. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the created. That's the inevitable outcome of this. Paying lip service to God. Calling on the right name of the right God, but worshiping in the wrong ways. With hearts that are far away from him. It wasn't that they didn't recite the right words. It wasn't that they didn't offer the right sacrifices. It wasn't that they didn't take the right steps. It was a matter of the heart. And God has spoken all throughout the Old Testament, condemning the worship of these men. Through prophets like I, uh, Isaiah and, and Malachi and then in Amos, he says this. It's a harsh rebuke. I hate and I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. You see, when it comes to worship, you will never, you have never heard the living God say, oh, any, any little thing will do. I'm, ju I'm just flattered you thought about me. No. No. You come on his terms. And his terms include the heart. It wasn't that these men lacked the proper steps, they lacked the proper songs, they lacked the proper readings. The problem was that they didn't have a heart like King David, a man well acquainted with sin. But golly, could that dude worship. And we read as he cries out in repentance, Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You know understand that God does not require men to be perfect to come and worship him. He wants you to come broken and knowing you are broken. He wants you to come contrite. He wants you to come humble and meek and poor, knowing how desperately you need him. Not paying lip service, not going through the motions, but coming with a broken heart. And so Jesus here is quoting the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 29 is what he's referring to. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You've taken the commandments of men and you teach them as if they are the doctrines of God. You've set up for yourself what you believe to be a boundary, to be a barrier, so that you come nowhere near sin. But here's the problem. It isn't that you're afraid of sinning. It isn't that you're afraid of sinning and offending the living God. It's that you don't want to have to repent. 
You don't want to have to come to me hat in hand recognizing that you can't do it. And so because of this, you set up these rules where you always win and you never come to me. You're a sinner and you are filthy. But because you follow after your own ways, your own commandments, the wisdom of the world, you never see that brokenness and you cannot come to me with a contrite heart. So instead, you walk in this place with your head held high, believing that you're right with me and you're not. Your songs are not beautiful to me. They're a noisy gong. I reject your worship. So I thought about this as I was studying. I was, as I was studying this text this week, I thought about, I kept wanting to crawl under a rock when I thought about it. You have those moments when you think back on, on yourself and you go, what? what is wrong with me? Early on, uh, when a man and I were, man and I were not yet married, we were engaged, and Amanda wasn't saved yet. Amanda got saved when she was pregnant with Annie. So we had been married about as long as she was pregnant with Annie. We got pregnant real quick. And um, so Amanda was not saved until she was pregnant with Annie. I was saved, I believe. I was baptized at 12 or 13, but I hadn't been following God at all. I mean, I went away to college, and I, don't, I think I walked into a church house two or three times during my entire five years of college. My language was atrocious. My thoughts were despicable. The way I treated people was disgusting. There was absolutely no fruit whatsoever in my life. But we knew that we needed to, we knew that we needed to be in church. And so a man and I visited a number, a, number of, a number of local churches. And so what you've got here, though, is one unsaved person and one dude that's either not saved or fallen way off the path. And so we, we, we visited a number of these churches, and I, I want to puke when I think about this today. I, I remember vividly talking to a family member, and we were talking about the local churches that we had visited. And with my nose held high, I told them, you know, I visited that one church, but they put the words to the songs on a screen. What's wrong with me? I don't believe God pukes, but he wanted to puke in that moment. He was disgusted. My heart was nowhere near him. I spent no time in his word. I spent no time honoring him. But because my views of worship, because my views, my traditions, my understanding of what worship was meant to be, they didn't match up to my standards. wouldn't have mattered whether I read out a hymnal or the back of a cereal box. God was not going to receive it because my heart was far off, and that's exactly where these men are. They created their own pictures, what this was meant to be, judging others. Thank God I'm not like that sinner over there. Thank you, Father. You've made me such a righteous guy. Isn't this church lucky to have me here? Looking down on our noses at the other people that we don't believe are doing it right. God says, I want your heart. I want you to be broken. So he says here, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching me as doctrines the commandments of men. Church, that's my desire for us. Each and every Sunday morning, that's my only desire, is that we would come together as a people unified, united around the word of God. We would come together around the word of God just seeking to know him, to see him, to drown out the wisdom of the world, to drown out the ceremonies, to drown out my own traditions, to come and just to rightly see God. And then as I see his glory, I see the glory of my living God, and I see my own depravity, that I would be broken. That I would fall down onto my knees, and I would sing songs of just broken contrition. God, forgive me. Forgive me. 
You owe me nothing. You have given me everything, and I've rebelled at every single turn. Even as I sit in this pew right now, my heart can't be completely pure. My heart continues to wander off. My thoughts continue to go places they shouldn't go. Shouldn't go. It's my desire for us that we come together with that, that we raise our voices in song. Singing praises, knowing that we deserve nothing, but that in Christ Jesus, he's given us everything. We see the one that did what we couldn't do, that offered us things that we don't deserve. That's a broken heart. That's a contrite heart. It isn't just raw, empty emotion, but your heart's got to come along too. How does a believer come to the word of the living God and not compelled inside? How are you not moved in your innermost being? Knowing all that God has done for you, knowing all the ways you've rejected him, and knowing the ways he came back and pursued you and chased you down. Dear friends, the traditions of men, the wisdom of men, they can't do this. Only God's word can do this. Only God's word can bring you to this point where you've got tears rolling down your face and the tears are both over your brokenness, your depravity, and their tears of gratitude knowing all that he's done. Only the word can do that. And people that don't spend time in the word, you can't really get all the way there. I said it before. It's like a three-year-old kid singing a love song. You don't even know about love. You're just singing the words. But you can't know God without coming to his word. You can't rightly see yourself without coming to his word. And every time you try to add something onto that, even the wisdom of men, you're moving further and further away. So he's saying, you must come to my word to truly delight in me, trusting that my word is going to transform you, that my word is going to sanctify you, that my word is going to mold you into my image so that our worship won't be like these guys singing the right songs, praising the right God, but doing it in the wrong way. Golly, I'm going long. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. So he's talking here about leaving, rejecting the commandments of God in order for the traditions of men. It's like you must let go of this in order to hold on to this trash. There's constant exchange going on in this lifetime. You need to understand that. Everything is an exchange. You're exchanging time or energy or something in order for something else. And in the kingdom of God, men are meant to be trading up, trading the trash of this world for the glories of heaven. But in our natural state, in our sinful self, we're always trading down, always trading down. What he's saying, you exchange the good law of God for the traditions of men. You can't have both. You let go of this in order to hold on to that. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father and his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things do you do. They're saying you have left the commandments of God for your own traditions, and your own traditions, your own wisdom, not only does it break your idea of sin, not only does it cause you to miss the Savior, not only does it wreck your worship, but it can cause you to break down at your very most fundamental relationships. It can cause you to get to a point where you, you completely miss the, the purpose for God leaving you here and the love that you're meant to hand out to those around you. You see, one of the Ten Commandments, Commandment number five, of course, was to honor your father and your mother. And honoring your father and your mother was more than just not fighting them and cussing them, cussing them or not just obeying them. It was honoring them to their very last breath. Something has been lost in this society. But you honor your father and your mother till their very last breath. That they get to die with the same kind of dignity that they once lived with. And that all the resources that are at your disposal, they're meant to make sure that this happens. That was the commandment of God 
to his people. It was a commandment punishable by death. This was a capital offense. God didn't mess around with this. You dishonor your father and your mother, you will die. They will take you out and they will stone you. But then there was a Hebrew tradition called Korban. What that meant was this was a vow. It was a pledge. You could say Korban over your stuff, and this meant I've devoted it. It's an irrevocable devotion. I have devoted this to the temple and to God. And then I can't use it for my parents any longer. Sorry, Mom, Dad. Whatever I'd love to care for you with, I've devoted it to God. But here's the tricky thing. You don't immediately give it over to the church house. It stays in your possession. So it's more like a will or a trust. And you can continue to use those things for your own care. You wrote your own rules. You see, when we get to write our own rules, we're always going to write them in our favor. We're always going to write them to the detriment of other people and to our own favor. We're always going to write them in ways that convince us that we're okay. Convince us that we're good just the way that we are. Convince us that we just need to be tweaked around the edges. We need, just need some new thoughts. So we're always going to tweak them to our advantage and to the disadvantage of others, even our own mom and our dad. That's exactly what he's pointing to here. The ruthlessness of looking to mom and dad and saying, I know God has commanded this, but my tradition commands this. And my tradition, it trumps what you've commanded. And believe it, these words that he speaks to him, they ought to echo in our ears. They ought to terrify us. Because what he says here is, you thus make void the word of God by, tra- by the traditions that you have handed down. The word of God is no longer of any use to you. Because you have looked at it and you have determined that it was not enough. That it was not sufficient. That it was not authoritative. That you needed some of that out there. That I needed your help in running my universe. And because of that, my word is now void. It is of no use to you whatsoever. You have completely missed my son. You cannot rightly worship me. You cannot rightly recognize sin. And even your relationships begin to break down. That's what's at stake. Beloved, I know that this is is not a comfortable conversation. I know that we live in a world where even the churches that surround us continue to tell us that what we need is God's word plus. God's word plus. And their answer is always, well, what's it hurt? Dear friends, it hurts greatly. My deepest desire for you, my deepest desire for me, my deepest desire for us as a faith family is that we would live like a people that truly believes that this word is enough. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, we thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself. You've revealed yourself in your creation. You have revealed yourself in our very conscience. Father, you have revealed yourself. You have left man completely without excuse. There's no man that could stand before you and say, well, I didn't know. I didn't know that there was a God out there. and I didn't know that he was worthy of my praise. I didn't know that he was all-powerful. I didn't know that he was divine. But, Father, your revelation in creation, your revelation in our conscience, that does not bring us all the way to Jesus Christ. So we thank you that you did not stop there. As you have said that you spoke through prophets of old, you spoke in these last days through Christ Jesus our Lord. We praise you for him, the ultimate revelation of who you are, the ultimate revelation of your love and your justice and your mercy. And we thank you that you didn't stop there. We thank you, Father, that you anointed apostles that will record that word for us. Father, the things that we know to be true about Christ Jesus, we know because of those faithful men that you chose to speak to and speak through and reveal to us who you are. We praise you for your word. Father, we acknowledge that there are far too many times when we allow your word to sit on the dashboard of our truck and we do not open it. 
We allow it to sit on the shelves in our office, and it grows dusty. There are too many times, Father, where we neglect your word. And, Father, there is great danger in that. We pray your forgiveness. We pray that you give us a heart which delights in your law, a heart which loves your word, a heart which sees you in your word and recognizes that the path to knowing and loving and obeying you is found there. We know that we cannot manufacture this heart on our own. So, Father, we pray that you would change us, that you would transform us, that you would bring us to a place where we desperately love your word. Father, as we attempt now to sing the truths that have been revealed in your word back to you, we pray that they would be pleasing to your ear. We pray that you would receive us. We pray that our hearts, because of what we know about you, that our hearts would be devoted to you in worship now, that the songs that we sing would be pleasing to you as we come to you wholly and completely. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.